Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Steinmetz here with Pete Puccio in the basement of Whitehall with the podcast that will always tell the truth about Western Connecticut State University. We call it at WCSU. And today we have some great interviews. One is with Alba Hawkins, a language professor here who does research on Latin American literature. And she'll be talking about authors today in Mexico who help give voice to the voiceless people who are just ground to dust by the government and the way things work down there uh, and can't speak out because they'll get killed. So some, ta- some authors help them um, talk about what's going on there. We also have an interesting segment on fungus brought to you by our guest host, uh, Rada Krell, who's often here on the podcast and decided to uh, muscle her way in and do her own interview. Yeah, she's taking over. I know. Usurping. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that you might be helping her and uh, looking forward to the day when it's the Rada Krell podcast. No comment. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> and she's going to be interviewing a fellow biology professor named Hannah Reynolds, who has uh, who will talk about her research with fungus and some upcoming speakers. That sounds like a pretty good lineup, right, Pete? Yeah. Short but sweet. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, part of the world. We're educating here, just like the professors. Yeah, the fungus thing is, uh, is surprisingly interesting. <laughs> I've always had a thing for fungus, actually. You and Egon Spengler. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think it's time to talk with Alba Hawkins. You've been a professor here teaching Spanish for a long time. You've done been doing research all that time, uh, concentrating, as far as I know, on literature in uh, South and Central America among the Latino countries or Spanish-speaking countries. And um, you recently have, or more recently have, uh, concentrated on Mexico and some literature and a specific author there and how it expresses the views and lives of people who are not in government and in power and who are being stepped on by government and power a lot. Is that right? Is that an accurate way to describe it? Yeah, so I've been at Westcon for 16 years now, and during that time I've traveled to Guadalajara to the Feria Internacional del Libro, the international book fair. It's the second largest in uh, in the world after one that's held in in Germany every year, and uh, that's where I came to uh, to read one of the, the authors that I started to study in the topic of human rights, Antonio Ortuño, uh, who wrote La Fila India. It's a book from 2013. It wasn't it all related with my trip to Guadalajara during that year. Uh, CSU AUP grant uh, sent me there for some work in translation that I was doing. I've, I've been translating uh, authors from Nicaragua for the past uh, approximately a decade now. And uh, so I was there working in, in the topic of translation, but my background has always been in the topic of human rights. So I'm always pulled toward 
publications. And in the book fair, I was pulled toward that publication that, that dealt with uh, human rights issues, specifically uh, uh, Latin American and Central American uh, immigrants passing through Mexico on the way to the, to the U.S. And so that became another focus of, of my research and took me into the area of, of current human rights issues and, and Mexico and the role that literature plays uh, in the process of telling stories uh, of people who are experiencing the violence of the cartels and, and border crossings, not just U.S. And, and Mexico border, but also from uh, through the Central American countries, the, the border with Guatemala as well, and the human trafficking that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> what's the message that uh, you can give us right now? I mean, that has been going on for a long time. Mexico has been a violent place for years. Uh, and the immigration story just keeps continuing as well. Well, there, there are two pivotal moments um, that I think uh, shifted the, the experience of, of people who have been migrating for many generations and for a variety of reasons. Um, in the 1980s, uh, many uh, people from El Salvador were escaping the, the violence uh, in, in El Salvador. Um, the dictatorship, authoritarianism, uh, before uh, El Salvador returned to peace. And in Nicaragua, we had the Contra. Uh, you're familiar with Iran-Contra yep. and the historical situation in, in Nicaragua. The, the Sandinistas came to power, and then the U.S. supported the Contra's fight against that government, uh, and that led to a lot of violence. So, so historically, uh, there been a whole variety of reasons that people have migrated from Central America, and they're, they're often not disconnected from the United States. So, mm -hmm. so it's, it's interesting because we look often at migration as, oh, people want to come here for the American dream or a better life, but quite often people are displaced, displaced historically due to violence, uh, other factors that have uh, influenced migration, hurricane uh, Mitch was uh, one of the most powerful hurricanes uh, in the late 1990s that hit the region. And there have been many others, including this past hurricane season that hit the region very, very hard. Mm -hmm. so, so people have been displaced, again, for a variety of reasons, uh, whether it's from violence or natural disasters, um, in addition to other types of poverty. Um, I think what what's different in, in the last... Uh, 20, 25 years. Uh, the first so, moment is 1994, which is the signing of NAFTA. So the, the free trade agreement between Canada, the U.S., and, and Mexico altered the economic relationship between the countries in the region and specifically altered uh, the development of maquiladora, so the factories. You know, you can't buy Levi's and Levi jeans made in the USA anymore. They're mm -hmm. all, you know, made across the border. So, so free trade agreements also occurred in other uh, Central American and Caribbean nations. So, so migration is very much tied to the the economic um, following the dollar trail. So, when the goods are are produced for for very little income, but all of the money 
goes back north, people follow that trail as well. Um, the other important uh, historical moment was uh, President Felipe Calderon in, in Mexico in 2006 declared a Mexico Mexican war on drugs. And we've all heard of the war on drugs in the mm -hmm. U.S., but specifically the war on the cartels, who were long-established um, territorial holders of, of different regions and control of different regions, and, and for the most part, uh, very, very much accepted locally, um, despite certainly violence and, and illicit uh, types of activities. Um, in that war on drugs, there was a splintering of the cartels because when you, when someone would be arrested who would be one of the leaders of a cartel, then everybody else would bubble to the top or try to bubble to the top to take over. And so there was a tremendous splintering and an increase, dramatic increase in violence after 2006. So those two historical moments collided um, in the in in around. You know, late 2000s and 2010, and it continues to be, uh, as as you well know, a tremendous issue in, in Mexico. For journalists, it's it's the most dangerous place in the world to be a journalist. Yeah. Most people would think that it's somewhere in the Middle East or some, in you know, place that's experiencing a current civil war. When in fact, it's it's our it's our neighbor. So often literature and, and the novel that, that I was studying um, comes to embody a, a, a way of, of creating a narrative to counter the, the types of violence and the silencing of, of people, not only the, the people who are suffering the extreme types of violence, like migrants who've been massacred and, and, and because the, the cartels are fighting over who controls the human trafficking route, mm -hmm. um, but because um, of, uh, well, I, I'll let you go on and, and ask another question. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm going on a little bit too much. <clears throat> no, that was, I, that was I, fine. I, 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 get, I get so caught up in things, you know, it's, and, and it's just, it, it's heartbreaking to know that there are people who want to tell these stories and they're being murdered, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's not just, just, but it's being just brutally murdered, being decapitated, being tortured, their families being threatened. And, and, and they're trying to speak out, um, for the, for the rights of people who have no rights. Right. So, um, yeah. And, the people, so in some cases, the journalists have the um, voice to tell a story, and but the people with the stories, they're uh, if they are known to be talking, they're just, they're silenced, or and sometimes it's the cartels, sometimes it's the government, or the government ignores them, right? Well, the government is uh, often found to be very much in an economic relationship with the cartels. And, and that's been the case throughout many of, uh, of, of the countries that have had relationships with, uh, with drugs. And again, we can go back to the Iran-Contra affair and we could ask ourselves right. if, if we're exempt from that. It's, it's not always uh, Latin American countries that, that develop political economic relationships with, uh, with drug running. So, sure. uh, so I think that, um, 
Yes, there certainly is uh, an awareness throughout Mexico, but an inability to to stop the the relationships between, in particular, um, uh, local governments, but also very high-powered officials uh, in um, establishing ties to the cartels to hold power, to come to power, and to also not be murdered, mm -hmm. to not be kidnapped. Right. So, so there's a there's a threat reward as well. So I guess it's not uh, um, it's not just Mexico or Latin America. It's everywhere. The powerless have don't have a voice, or usually don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. But you are illustrating that literature, nonfiction literature, can um, give people a voice. Yes. Well, well, the book that I've been working with is fiction. So it's written by a Mexican author who was born in Guadalajara and was uh, inspired by the massacres that were happening in a different part of Mexico, closer to the U.S. border and in a region of Tamaulipas. Um, and he's a he is by by profession a journalist. Hmm. So why did he not just write journalism? <laughs> why why did he not just report on what was happening and, and as I've said you know that, that there, there's such a, uh, a tremendous risk that that one assumes by by going in that direction and, and being a, a human rights journalist in, in Mexico so I, I think that the telling a story that is it has characters who aren't quote unquote real but it's a real story uh, I think is is a way to point a finger at what's happening mm -hmm. to Mexican readers. So he's a Mexican author speaking to Mexican readers uh, with Mexican characters and also characters who are migrants as well uh, to bring to light some of these connections between government and cartel forces and the violence that's occurring in the country. And he's not the only author to do so, but what makes him exceptional in my opinion is that he differs from the vast majority of people who are writing what we would call narco novelas or narco cine or narco corridos, which is music, literature, mm. television, film that's meant to entertain through blood and gore and sexy women who are assassins. And mm. and it it it's something that that makes the violence seem exotic or titillating. Uh, and uh, he he does, I think he he does a, a very different, takes a very different approach um, and uh, as more of a journalist, mm -hmm. rather, although he's dealing with fiction rather than someone who is entertaining. What I've found interesting about the particular book that I've studied is that it has not been translated to English yet. And yet, the uh, Narco Corridos, Narco Novelas, uh, El Señor de los Cielos is on Netflix. <laughs> Miss Bala, uh, mm -hmm. Rosario Tijeras, which is a film, very popular song by Juanes, who's one of Colombia's most popular uh, singers, um, novel, uh, and, a, and a telenovela soap opera type series uh, readily available for people to see in the U.S. internationally. And, and so all of this very glorified type of violence um, 
is, is available, whereas this type of, of book, I think, is, while it's not censured, doesn't receive the kind of attention that, uh, that the others have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Is it having an effect, or has it had an effect in Mexico? Are readers there engaged with it or reacting to it? Well, I think that people in Mexico in general are engaged with the, the complexity of the problems that they face from the, the students who were um, murdered in, in Ayotzinapa, one of the most famous cases. And I think that one of the reasons that the world looked so much at, at, at these, these students is they're, they're students. They're young. They're like our students. They're, right. they're young and they're vibrant and they have dreams and they... And 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 for the Mexican population, they're Mexican. Mm -hmm. and, and they so did nothing wrong, right? They were not engaged in drug trafficking or, or anything like no. that. Well, they 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 did <clears throat> take some buses to go to a protest, but it's something that's a tradition. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you could say they did, but certainly not to be tortured and murdered, and and their bodies not returned mm -hmm. to their families. Um, yeah. And the cases being not solved because of government corruption. So mm -hmm. so the world looked at that, but when the there were a hundred, over 100 people massacred in Tamaulipas who were from Central America and other Latin American countries, uh, there was one witness from the second massacre, it was 193 people, and, and one of the witnesses who survived was from Ecuador and described what had happened. And, 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 and the world didn't seem to be paying much attention to that. And according to interviews that the, the author, Antonio Artuño, has given, that was one of the reasons that he wrote the book, to draw mm. attention to, to what had happened so that the world would look at it. Mm -hmm. um, and how do you bring it, what do you, how do you bring it back to your classroom and your students and relate it to them? So I teach a course in uh, Latin America and human rights, and it deals specifically with period of revolution, dictatorship, and return to democracy. Mm. But this is the novel that I include at the very end of the course, uh, after we've studied testimonial literature, which is uh, um, from the 1970s and 80s, uh, from Chile, from Argentina, from other uh, countries that experienced dictatorships and people were tortured or uh, lost family members and the testimonial narratives, you know, reached out to the world, um, almost in the way that that many Holocaust survivors wrote mm. memoir uh, to to denounce the the experiences and and the the violence. Um, it, it it's a way to take power. It's an it's an empowerment to take that voice and make that voice your own and say that this is what happened. So you're the subject of the writing of the story rather than having that story written for you. In fact, that was the topic of my, my dissertation hmm. many, many decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the empowerment uh, that literature can give uh, for the author uh, who has experienced that violence. Um, and and uh, it, it continues to, to this day. So in my courses, um, in that particular course, uh, this novel speaks to the continuation of that tradition, that Latin American tradition of the merging of, of the collective imaginary and to, to reject the, the hegemonic 
uh, violence, of state terrorism, uh, the drug cartels as uh, as uh, violence against uh, against people as well. The violence has shifted, but it's still there. Right. Do um, what's your opinion about whether these countries can move toward or achieve democracy? Do you think we can? <laughs> <laughs> it's touch and go, right? <clears throat> I, I, I yes. I mean, we we had uh, scenes just in the past two days of our own country and our own capital. Um, mm-hmm. People died. Mm-hmm. So I think democracy is always an ideal that every nation works toward. Hopefully, um, for people to live in peace and mutual respect uh, with access to uh, living a good life. The, um, uh, I mean, one of the shocks of what happened on January 6th is that we seem to, it, we the country was so fragile, is so fragile, and democracy seemed so close to being overthrown. Uh, which is, you know, not usually the case here in the United States, right? But in a lot of um, Latin countries, there's so much violence and the, so much government corruption, right? At least most of the time in our government, if a senator takes a bribe, they're often found, they, you know, put in jail sometimes. But a lot of that doesn't happen down there, right? It's um, more entrenched. So one of the other courses that I teach is a course on Latin American cultures. And one of the the traditions of colonialism and post-colonialism is a is a kind of tug of war in in many Latin American countries between the strong man populism mm-hmm. and the strong leader, um, Bolivar uh, from the independence, uh, mm. Simon Bolivar, the strong man and strong ideas and strong institutions. And I always give my students the, the independence leader, San Martin, who rejected kind of in a, the way George Washington did, you know, rejected that continuation of power eternally. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to be another king. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted strong institutions. And, and that tug of war has always existed. And I've observed it many times in my studies of Latin America between the strong man and strong institutions. Uh, recently here in the U.S., it's been one of the first times that I've observed it in my own country mm-hmm. um, in, in such an elaborate yeah. way. Um, yeah. But but I've seen it before. And and yes, it. I don't think any nation is immune to that tug of war, especially a post-colonial nation. I mean, we, we right. were a colony. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. Um. So do you have hope? I mean, you've immersed yourself in this research about things that are very dark, right? Yes, yes. I, I think that what happened in a, in a strange way, I go all the way back to when I was starting my graduate program and I was 21 years old. I was the youngest person uh, in, in the program and and I hadn't, I didn't know anything about the dictatorship in Chile. Um, I knew nothing about 
1973, um, Argentina, 1976. And, and some of my courses, I started reading testimonial narratives or novels similar to the one that I'm reading here with you, Antonio Artuño's novel. And, and I felt so ignorant. Hmm. And I, I was astonished at my own ignorance. And it inspired me to learn more. Uh, so I've always sought to have a purpose and have meaning in life. And uh, while I enjoy frivolous things, just like everyone else, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, having a purpose and in, in a, in a meaning in, in the research that I do and in the courses that I teach has uh, really defined my 30 years can you believe it? Thirty years. <laughs> when did we get old? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Now, do you have an opinion about the novel American Dirt? You know what's interesting is I think a lot of the pushback has to do with the fact that in the U.S. there is a very long Hispanic tradition. There's a very long tradition canon of Latinx that we call them now. I, I grew up saying Latino, Latina, Latinx mm-hmm. authors. You think of the migrant worker novel, Y no se lo trago la tierra by Tomas Rivera, 1971. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, authors who, who've been writing for decades. And I think that to, to, give so much attention to an up and coming author who writes okay (laughs) and whose Spanish is somewhat deficient, but who had probably very good intention and was paid extremely well. I think that there are a lot of factors in there. I, I would hope that rather than tearing down that that kind of debate and conversation can build up the authors maybe we should be reading. Mm-hmm. Like Mario Castro, Odisea del Norte. Um, this is a novel from the 1990s and Odyssey of the North, it's, it's, it's on Amazon in translation, so it's there. <laughs> right. So, um, but it's, I, I can see where there would be a lot of hard feelings of people who feel that they've been excluded from a traditional U.S. literary canon mm-hmm. and um, and not paid well or not able to be published. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I can I can see that absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. That is a big part of it. And then some people don't like the. Um the uh, way the novel is written and the story in the novel of various parts of it. but And if you know Spanish, it's bad Spanish. Very similar to, uh, there's a novel that I've taught in one of my courses, and it's Soñar en Cubano in Spanish, Dreaming in Cuban, and English is written by the second-generation Cuban-American. So she wrote it in English. Mm-hmm. When it was translated, it was translated to Spanish from Spain. Oh. <laughs> so if you read the novel in Spanish, it doesn't sound Cuban at all. And it just, it's awkward. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that, yes, there's, there's some of that as well, that the writing itself was somewhat deficient. And especially if you have any knowledge of what was being written about. Absolutely. Right. 
Right. It's very interesting. As was our discussion today, I really appreciate you joining us and uh, talking about your research and your teaching and um, the things that you are uh, give you purpose these days. Thank you. Yeah, Paul, you missed this one. Rada came in with uh, uh, Dr. Hannah Reynolds this morning. Dr. Rada Krell came in with Dr. Hannah Reynolds. Yes, excuse please. me. And uh, it was cool. It talked about some of the, the senior research stuff. I'm always impressed with what, what our students get to do. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I sort of take it for granted because I've been here forever, but I understand that a lot of places the students don't really get to do that hands-on research. Was it last year we had the kids, come, the students came on to talk about when they went up to Maine? Yeah. And they said even they, when they were working with other kids, students, were... Uh, from other places. Yeah, we're really surprised at how much more they got to do, and I think right. that's really cool. It is cool, and we happen to have professors who are into that and involve students on in research that really you don't get to do it most places until you're a graduate student. Yeah, I know it, it's at this point, I know I've heard this a thousand times, but that's, that's one thing about WCSU that's really cool is that you are working with the real professors, the real researchers. You're not... You know, getting taught by grad assistants, and you know, I, right. I know I sound like a brochure at this point, but it's it's true, and it happens all across the board in all departments. You really have you know hands-on experience with the genuine article. Yeah, and you know the professors we've had on this podcast, you can tell they love working with students. Yeah, it's not just handing off work to them; they like teaching them and getting them involved in the dirt. Yes, it shouldn't be that surprising <laughs> in higher ed, but unfortunately, it yeah, is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but not at Westcon. So I'm thrilled to be here again this week to talk about the cool stuff going on in the science building. And I'm especially thrilled to be here because we have a special guest, Dr. Hannah Reynolds. And Dr. Reynolds is our microbiology professor at Western Connecticut State University. So she teaches um, you know, she, the course she teaches, one of her courses, microbiology, is really important for both our nursing program and our biology program. So she really serves in a very key role within the university. In addition to that, she is the uh, head of the WCSU Fungus Lab. And so she runs, uh, that is her lab that she runs and um, answers a lot of cool questions about uh, microbiology. And um, so with that, I'd like to introduce her. And um, Hannah, could you tell us a little bit more about the sort of work that you do in your lab? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so what I'm interested in is fungal evolution and ecology. And what I've um, been working on is looking at how fungi can grow in soil and the different um, ways they've evolved to handle lots of different soil conditions can affect the evolution of disease fungi. So there is fungi that cause wildlife disease. And the one that I study is white nose syndrome that infects bats. And white nose syndrome is caused by a fungus that is found in caves and also in, um, it has relatives in many places around the world in various soils and other environments. So I'm interested in how the ecology of this fungus ties into its disease cycle. So people in my lab sometimes are looking at more ecological questions like how do these fungi grow in response to different nutrients, or they might look at genetics and genomics questions. How have they evolved and how are their genes uh, different from other species? 
Um, we've also worked on some genetic tools to detect white nose syndrome. So I'm interested in questions about the intersection between fungi, soil, and disease, selection, pressures, and um, community structure. Ah, that is, it's, yeah, that's so cool and so relevant to stuff going on in our region of the country. And, um, you know, again, what I love about having this opportunity for us to get to share on the podcast is you would drive by the science building on the WCSU campus and never know, like, all of the really cool stuff going on in our building. So um, I love being able to share that information with the world. Um, so in that vein, uh, this semester, you are teaching a group senior research class. And um, this is a class that's required for all of our biology majors towards end their senior year to ensure that everyone has had some experience with hands-on research. And so um, in Hannah's class this semester, they are, as you know, we all are trying to be as creative as possible to ensure the students are getting hands-on experiences. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the things your students are doing? Because it just, it sounds like a really fun class. <laughs> yes, um, I am excited to be teaching this class for the second time. And we have been interrupted by uh, snow days and other things, but we have got to do some in-person experiences so far. So right now in the class, this is usually the time where we're refining our big questions into something that's testable in a semester and making hypotheses. So that's what we've been doing when we've met online to discuss our topic. Our big question this semester is how does road salts, so de-icer, how does that affect soil microbial communities? We have all of this um, salt that we put down for safety on the roads, but then that salt washes off every time there's a thaw or a rain, and it will go into the soil and filter through the soil into our groundwater or our surface water. So we're looking at, um, you know, refining questions to have a testable um, question that we can do in the span of a semester on de-icer and um, the, the microbes that are growing in the soil and sediment. So what are we actually doing? <laughs> we needed to get some, um, some soil or sediment to work on. And I'm drawing a distinction here between soil, which develops in place, and sediment, which is uh, brought in through water or wind. And the ground is frozen solid right now. If you try to go out and shovel, you're gonna just, it's gonna be like trying to chip at granite. I mean, it really is frozen solid, it's an ice cube. So um, the thing that we can get is sediment at the bottom of ponds. So we trekked out last Thursday, we met on West Campus and I brought several shovels and some collecting equipment, which is just um, some Tupperware and Falcon tubes, which are these little small screw tap, uh, screw cap sterile tubes. And we had planned to go down to the pond near the Ives Concert Park. Um, so when we got to the parking lot and parked our cars, we saw that nobody had shoveled or plowed this um, path to the pond. So we just forged through, um, sometimes thinking up below, in the snow below our knees or right depending on how tall you are it was either above your knee or below your knee and forged on through to the pond and then we collected in four places around it so parts of the pond didn't have ice on them so there are some some little streams so we were able to just shovel that up and get the sediment 
at the bottom of the pond and get some pond water. And then sometimes we were taking our shovel and smashing the ice to get at the pond. And it was it was a fun day. Um, it was a beautiful sunny day and we were the first people to go out in the snow on that side of West Campus. So then um, I brought back all of our equipment and collecting uh, materials and I've stored them in our science building. And then what we'll be doing is um, we'll be testing the sediment for um, uh, different kinds of metabol uh, metabolism. So we'll be adding some road salt to it and the students will be looking through the scientific literature to decide what kinds of salt we want to test and what levels of salt we want to test. Wow. So what I love about this is, you know, I think so often the vision of a scientist is like the person in the white lab coat in a like a sterile room. And this is like, you know, hardcore, you know, getting out in nature, braving the elements to collect samples, you know, the tenacity and sort of the like the excitement of being like a true adventurer is really often part of science that I think people don't appreciate. So I love that you the students got to have that experience with you. And and I think what else is cool is those samples are going to be so much more meaningful. You know, you could have like given them samples, but they have so much more ownership over, you know, looking at these because they get that opportunity for true discovery because who knows, right? You collected this stuff and, you know, they had played a role in kind of getting the foundational material for what you're going to explore. So I think I'm, I'm thrilled for our students. They get to have this experience. And I love that, you know, you're like, we're going to figure out how to do this, even in winter, even in snow up to our knees. It's really, it's really great. I think um, it's, it's launching the semester in a really positive place for your students. So I think they enjoyed it. Um, and I think ever, ever since I moved to Connecticut, I've been wanting to do some kind of winter field research because we have, usually in a spring semester, we have a few snow days. And I've been thinking hard about, you know, what are, what are the microbiology um, questions that you can address even when there's snow on the ground or there's ice on the roads? And it's, it's a lot of fun for me because um, I think, you know, it, it opens up some opportunities to do year-round field research, even if you're, um, you know, even if it's a little bit. I mean, the Ives Concert Park is geographically very close to our parking lots on West Campus, and so it was easy to get to, except for all of the snow that was in the way. But that's um, that's kind of what made it fun. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I love, um, once again, that um, I love the creativity that, in general, our faculty bring to, you know, giving these experiences to our students. So, um, and I think the other thing that's important about what you're doing is, you know, kind of bringing realization to, I think a lot of people may have thought about the effect of salt on roads related to grass or plants, but people aren't thinking about the microbes in the soil as well. So I love this kind of bringing attention and awareness to kind of a, um, something that probably most people aren't thinking about related to, um, you know, our winter practices and potentially how they affect uh, really fundamental parts of our ecosystem. So um, I think that's really fun. So later this um, this semester, would you be willing to come back and tell us some results? I think yes, I think that would be really fun. After we've um, set up the experiment, we should be getting results 
in March. And then we're planning for the class to present their research findings at our Western Research Day, which is going to be all remote this semester. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that. so let's like tentatively plan to check back in because I think now everyone will be, um, you know, anxiously waiting to hear <laughs> what you find. Yeah, I would love to update um, this podcast. And I think it will be um, something that is, is you know, going to have some surprising results. Um, we're not sure. That's one of the fun things about this research class is you get to do projects where the professor doesn't really know how it's going to turn out mm -hmm. and neither does anyone else. We're going to be doing some new things and uh, we're basing them on published findings. So we'll be basing our hypotheses around what we already know about salt and microbial function, but we'll be finding something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that the students get to experience that joy of discovery or that potential that um, managing the the the, uh, the potential for not <laughs> failure. <laughs> the heartache, the heartache of ambiguous results. <laughs> oh, there we go. Well, thank you so much for um, for joining in today, Hannah. And we'll thanks for having me. Having you again. Thanks, Pete, too. Hey, everybody, this is Pete. We also wanted to take this opportunity to let uh, Dr. Hannah Reynolds tell you about one of the upcoming Thursday seminars that biology is hosting. This is for Dr. Amy Arnston, who's the Albert E. Kent Professor of Neuroscience at Yale University. And she's going to be talking Thursday the 18th at 4 p.m. on a virtual seminar. Um, and her talk is going to be about the higher cognitive function of the prefrontal cortex and how its unique molecular requirements makes it particularly vulnerable to dysfunction under conditions of fatigue or stress and with advancing age. These molecular mechanisms become dysregulated in cognitive disorders such as schizophrenia and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so Dr. Amy Arnston, is, she studies the molecular regulation of the brain in primates, looking at stress and age and how that affects cognitive disorder risk. Mm. Well, we're a lot of stress, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, stress is on all of our minds right now. Our long-term cognitive abilities. <laughs> so, and if um, if people, if the public is interested to listen to those, how would they find a link to it? What they have to do, they if they go to our website, uh, www.wcsu/biology/seminars, they will see a registration link. It's free and open to the public. You just have to pre-register so that you can have the link to join us for the seminar at four o'clock on February 18. I guess that's it. Right? So. What's we nothing else? News? Same old stuff. Yeah, we're still testing every week. There's a bunch of new, uh, there's a new FAQ on the website to explain all our testing, answer all your questions, or almost all. And uh, so, you know, if you're on campus and you're a student, we expect you to go there and get tested. It's good for you. And of course, if you test positive, we'll take care of you too. Yeah, and keep an eye on uh, wcsu.edu slash wow. Everything that's happening on campus, virtually or in person, is listed there. And so it's a great source for uh, to know what's, what's happening, Westcon related. So until next week, this is Paul Steinmetz with Pete Puccio, 
and at WCSU. See you next week. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Foldy. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.